It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got a lot of updates from Apple, Firefox, Google, even Microsoft. Why? Well, the big Pwn to Own conference starts today in Vancouver at Cansac West. Steve also has the anatomy of the first weaponized malware, the Stuxnet. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 291, recorded March 9th, 2011, Stuxnet. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite. Backing up the files on your PC or Mac is safe and easy with Carbonite. For a free trial, plus two free months of purchase, go to Carbonite.com and use the offer code SECURITYNOW. And by MailRoute. MailRoute is a secure, hosted service that filters virus and spam for companies of any size. For 10% off the life of your account, visit MailRoute.info. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security online, your privacy, and here he is, the man of the hour, our guru from the Gibson Research Corporation, the creator of Spinrite, the world's best hard drive utility, and many great free security programs, Steve Gibson. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo, it's great to be with you again, as always. What's our uh, topic of the day today? We've got a great one. I referred to it a couple weeks ago, probably when you were uh, off and Tom was, was holding down the fort here, that Symantec had released a very comprehensive report on their detailed analysis of Stuxnet, mm. which they really took apart. And I had... I thought, well, this would make an interesting topic. And now I'm convinced that by the end of this podcast, no one listening will be able to doubt that the term cyber weapon applies. I mean, that, that clearly, I, I don't think there's any way this could have been produced without national level state sponsorship. And... This thing is so sophisticated and was so targeted. Um, this, the statistics that have been gathered demonstrate it. And one of the coolest things that Stuxnet did is as it infected machines, it appended to a log of its, basically of its travels. And by capturing samples, the log was, uh, Semantic was able to obtain more than 3,000 instances of Stuxnet and by going back through the log that it itself carried they were able to basically follow this thing back in time and determine that there were three specific attack waves and which five companies were targeted so it's not just like it's oh look it's everywhere it's you know all over the internet everyone has it no I mean we know exactly how this happened and it's really fascinating. 
Well, I can't wait to find out more about it. We also have other security news, quite a bit of security news as we approach <laughs> we the, the Pwn yes. to Own conference, which I think is coming up today or tomorrow. Uh, yep. Before we do that, let me talk about backing up. You know, Steve has this great program, uh, uh, SpinWrite, which will get a hard drive recovered. But truth is, if you backed up, and I don't want to put you out of business or anything. I know I won't. <laughs> That'll never happen. But if you backed up, it wouldn't be such a crisis, right? It's always the people who go, I didn't have a copy of anything. I need to save it. That, uh, that right ends to Steve. Let me tell you something. Carbonite backup will not sell fewer copies of Spinrite, no doubt, but it will save a lot of people's bacon. It already has. I can't remember. I saw the number, and I, and I wonder if I have it here, of the number of files restored, the number of, of petabytes of data restored uh, by Carbonite. It's, it's in the millions I think tens of millions of uh, files that Carbonite has restored. These are people who were smart enough to install Carbonite. It's an online backup service that's back both for a Mac and Windows. It uses your Internet access. So whenever you're online, even at an open access spot like, uh, say, let's say Starbucks, it uses SSL. So you're completely, you know, private and secured. In fact, you can additionally encrypt uh, data automatically on the fly in the background. I think they use Triple Des and Blowfish. Um, and it is, so it's, you know, it's your private data, um, and it is a great deal. $55 a year for all the personal data on your internal drive. That's all that, whether it's gigabytes or terabytes. Now I got to tell you, it uses your upstream bandwidth. So if it's terabytes, you plan, plan on a, a slow first backup, but that's why Carbonite wants you to try it free for two weeks. Get a sense of how it works on your system. Go to Carbonite.com and use the offer code. And please do this for me. Offer code security now. I know sometimes people go, oh, I can't remember it. I'll just use Twit. But then Steve doesn't get credit for it. And we want, and it's not like he gets paid extra or anything. It's just we want people, we want our advertisers to know what show you heard it on. So when you go to Carbonite.com and you sign up, you get the same offer anyway. It just uses the words security now, one word, no space, to, uh, to tell Carbonite that's where you heard the ad. Try it for two weeks, 15 days. Uh, the, there's a little, there's a limitation, I think, on the on the trial offer that you can't back up videos, something like that. But you get the idea. And then if you decide to buy and use the offer code Security Now, they'll take your 12 month subscription and extend it to 14 months, which I think is a great, great deal. It's already inexpensive. Carbonite.com offline backup. Oh, and by the way, one of the nicest features of Carbonite, you don't have to wait till disaster strikes. It's really off off site storage too. You can log on, uh, in on any computer and get any file that you've backed up anywhere, anytime. So it's really, for 55 bucks a year, I mean, that's, that's half what it would cost for the equivalent amount of storage on, uh, on Dropbox, for instance. Um, it's a really great deal. Uh, and there is a free iPhone app or BlackBerry app as well. And I think they're doing other uh, smartphones too. Carbonite.com, Mac or Windows, online backup done right. It's what I use, and I encourage you to try it. Use the offer code security now to find out more. All right, Steve, I have in front of me a list, starting <laughs> with Patch Tuesday. Well, yes, we are just past uh, our standard second Tuesday of the month. So Microsoft has actually a rather lean response this month. Um, they fixed four different vulnerabilities, one which was critical um, in their media playback, which affected all the recent OSs, XP, Vista, and Windows 7, such that if you went to a site that had a specially crafted malicious video, it could execute code on your machine. That they fixed. The bad news is the zero-day exploit, which we have talked about 
recently the so-called MHTML exploit. Uh, MHTML is sort of a pseudo-protocol pro, uh, protocol in, in the same way that we have HTTP colon. Microsoft defines MHTML colon as a way to invoke MIME-encoded HTML. We talked about um, how that's, be, that's used for archiving whole web pages in the same way that MIME stands for multi-part, what is it, multi-part internet message extension or something? Yeah, something like that. Uh, for, for allowing email to contain non-textual things like photos and so forth, you know, MIME is, is how you do that. Similarly, this is how Microsoft has their own proprietary format for storing an entire web page, including all of its assets, its other photos and so forth. There, there's a problem with it such that if you go to a website that invokes this protocol, uh, similarly, they're able to get their own code to run on your machine. Well, that didn't get fixed this Tuesday, and I was hoping it was because it is being actively exploited in the wild. So I wanted to remind our listeners that there is a one-click easy fix-it button that Microsoft offers. Um, if you go to go.microsoft.com, then question mark link ID equals 9760419. That will take you to this page with the quick fix dealie that just disables that protocol. And probably every, I mean, it's one of those things that's on by default, that's got a problem in it, that if you don't know you need it, you probably don't. So, you know, I mean, I immediately went there and just said, I don't need this. I'm turning it off. And, and had Microsoft fixed it a couple days ago, we'd probably be okay. But like these things, now that it's seen that Microsoft hasn't fixed it, we can expect more exploits to happen. So it's a, it's a, it's a, oh, sit up and take notice to hackers. It's a problem. Yes, exactly. They're saying, hey, we got another month probably. Right. So let's jump on this. So right. more important to do that. So um, you pr I don't know what you could Google to get there. It's, you know, MHTML exploit, but you can go to go.microsoft.com slash question mark link ID equals 9760419. And I get a download, immediate download when I go there. So you're getting yes. a dot, an MSI file, an installer. Yes. Yes, in fact, that is the link that you you get when you click the button, and so it'll instantly say, "Here's your goodie." Um, you know, run this, and we'll. And all it's doing is it's just making some registry tweaks. It's changing. It's basically uh -huh. removing the protocol from the registry where it's defined. So it's not even. It's not installing anything. It's not you know making any deep changes in your system. Just changing some values. And there is on that there, there on, on the related pages about this, you can see, you know, do-it-yourself registry stuff if you don't want to use Microsoft's little quick fixer. Right. So. Yeah, maybe just go to the go to the security advisory, 250-1696, and uh, if yes. you want to read about it, and there's, I'm sure, a link there to the download. So Yes, yeah. that's that's great advice. Yeah. Now, everybody else has, <laughs> has, has, in a somewhat of a panic, yeah. they have pushed out fixes for their browser because of something you refer to that is happening in Vancouver as we record this today, Wednesday the 9th, the 10th, and the 11th of March is the um, uh, uh, the CanSec West. It's the 12th annual 
CanSec West Security Conference, Canadian Security West Security Conference, um, happening in Vancouver. One of the, well, first of all, there are a bunch of fun things going on there. Um, in, the, in the agenda, one of the talks is SMS ODeath, which I get a kick out of. Also, iPhone and iPad hacking and stale pointers are the new black um, are some of the topics for the conference. Anyway, one of the things that they host there, and we've talked about this for the last several years because fun things come out of it, is the so-called pwn-to-own basically competition where the security researchers and white and gray hat hackers who attend attempt to exploit not before known, that is to say zero-day vulnerabilities which they've discovered or know of in the popular browsers. So in the ramp up to this, Apple recently immediately updated their, um, their Safari both on the Mac OS platform and on the Windows platform. In the case of Windows, they moved iTunes, which uses the, the WebKit engine, which is what's common in Safari. They moved iTunes up to 10.2 in the process fixing more than 50 known security vulnerabilities over on the Windows side. iTunes over on the Mac OS was moved to 10.2.1 also just just recently. So anyone using Macs or and especially iTunes over on Windows, I don't know if, if you're not going into iTunes very often, uh, it's worth to get 50 security vulnerabilities fixed. Yeah. You want to bring yourself up to 10.2. <laughs> Even if you don't use it often. Yeah. Exactly. Um, over on the it's Mozilla. a little deceptive because it's a, it's an iTunes update, yes. And uh, people assume, oh well, if like I, if you were on the Mac and you didn't use iTunes, you go, oh, I could ignore it. But no, really, it's not. Yes, because it's, it's it's WebKit that is being yeah. brought along, and that's the rendering engine, the layout engine, right? Uh, in Safari, and the there's all these problems that they know of in font rendering and HTML layout. So which, even if you don't use iTunes on Windows, if you use Safari on Windows, you have to do this. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I presume there'll be WebKit updates for WebKit itself and other WebKit-based uh, apps. You know, Chrome is WebKit-based, so that's probably where the Chrome updates come from. Yes. Yeah. Um, over on the Mozilla side, uh, similarly, Firefox, they brought themselves completely up, you know, completely current. Anything that they knew of that they hadn't sort of gotten around to pushing out yet, you know, before this conference, it's like, oh, we got to, you know, get this out. So, uh, in fact, I, I noticed that I'm still at 3.6.13 on my main system, although a laptop that I started up yesterday did bring itself current, Firefox is now on the 3.6 chain, is up to 0.14. If you're still back at 3.5, that's at, at 3.5.17. But also Thunderbird needs to be brought up to 3.1.8 and SeaMonkey up to 2.0.12. Um, and this fixes a bunch of stuff. Uh, problems in the JavaScript engine, code handling uh, under HTML, style sheets, scalable vector graphics objects, and JPEG images. So just across the board. Um, and as is typical now, these are exploitable by enticing a user to visit a malicious website that then gets your browser to do something it was not designed to do. And lastly, Chrome 
always sneaking along as it is. When I fired my Chrome up, it was behind times. And so it quickly updated itself to what is now current, 9.0.597.107, in the process fixing 19 known security issues. Um, and, you know, Google never talks much about what these are, but we know, for example, that several are stale pointer vulnerabilities. In fact, that was the topic of one of the talks was, remember, stale pointers are the new black. Um, <laughs> uh, and also, they had an integer overflow problem, and one of the things we are now seeing more of is memory use after free vulnerabilities, where, where memory is released, but then there's still a pointer to it that allows it to be accessed and in a way that the designers did not intend. So that's cleaned up in Chrome. So across the board, our browsers have sort of straightened themselves up in the hopes that they were able to survive the next three days. Um, the, this Pwn to Own conference uh, uh, on their website, they say, if you can execute arbitrary code, and they say parens PWN, which of course is the hacker short, the hack hacker NIM for for maliciously taking ownership of something that was not yours um, through a and it's it's really it's interesting because there isn't a, a really a clear history of how that came to be. Um, people are assuming maybe it was a typo since P on our on our English keyboard is right next to O, maybe somebody was typing, meant to type own, O-W-N, but they typed P-W-N. They thought, they thought, hey, that's kind of cool. Who knows where it came from? But um, so if, if hackers are able to execute arbitrary code through a previously undisclosed browser, either Firefox, IE, Safari, or Chrome exploit, then the site says you can go home with one, parens own. So, pwn to own. Uh, the browser prizes for exploits were increased this year to $15,000. Um, and there are also uh, state-of-the-art phones, laptops, and cash. And then Google went a little further, um, started, decided to stoke the fires under Chrome, and tossed in an additional 20 k for Chrome-specific exploits, which are found. So, if anyone's curious, the site is CanSecWest, C-A-N-S-E-C-W-E-S-T dot com, and the slash agenda dot HTML uh, shows the, the, the three days that I'm sure that we will be talking about next week, the uh, outcome of, of these three days, the Pwn to Own competition, always uh, produces some fun results. It's a great, it's an amazing uh, event, and I think it's, this is a measure of its a real success, is that people are, I mean, they didn't do this in the past. And credit to Charlie White for breaking Safari every single time, winning 15 grand in a Macintosh laptop. I think th <laughs> this finally forced Apple, which has been traditionally pretty slow to acknowledge these problems, to do something about it. It's embarrassing for them. Yeah. So good yeah. job. <laughs> well, and it's, it is, I'll, I'll say again that it's worth noting that Microsoft didn't do anything other than just well, roll out their regular old Patch Tuesday. But that patch, that HTML flaw, could well have been the one that people wanted to use, right? Yes. And so you know, so anyone's disqualified because that's publicly known. So it has to oh. be... Oh. Yeah. So they the can't they, use something that is known. 
Correct. It's got to be a surprise. Ah. So it's so it's got to be something new. That's Charlie Miller. I'm sorry, I said the idea. Wrong. So Charlie says, by the way, uh, I got something. <laughs> <laughs> he says it's okay. <laughs> we'll see. It's amazing. I mean, a Apple gets pwned almost immediately in the last few years that I can remember. Almost immediately, Safari is broken. Yeah. Well, I've been studying for the last several weeks JavaScript in in greater detail than I ever have before um, because I have, uh, I have something that I want to do that has to be done in real time interactively on the client. And I've, met, I've gone through all kinds of hoops historically to absolutely not require any scripting on GRC. You know, I have famously the script-free drop-down menuing system, which I created out of pure CSS, nothing but cascading style sheets. Um, the e-commerce system that I wrote for, for Spinrite uh, Commerce uh, does not even need cookies to be enabled. You, and it's still, the whole shopping cart system works and your state is preserved as you go through that experience with no state whatsoever being, being kept in the browser. And, but there, you know, there are times when you need something browser-based interactive, you know, like Gmail, and, you know, gosh, pretty much Google anything uh, where you absolutely have to have scripting. So anyway, as I've been bringing myself up to state of the art where I can actually write, you know, a substantial chunk of code in JavaScript, I just shake my head. I mean, I'm just, it's like, oh, my God. I mean, the language is begs to have people use it wrong and create bugs. It's, it, the, it, the problem is... It tries to be simple, but a language isn't simple. And all language is inherently complex. And so by, by saying, oh, look how simple this is, it, it does seduce non-programmers to try to start using it, and they can get results. But inevitably, they start wanting to do more complex things. And, and the way JavaScript was designed... It, it just you're, it just begs you to have problems because it sort of tells non-programmers, oh look, this is just sort of scripting. Anybody can do this. And uh, anyway, uh, so anyway, when I when I when I look at these sorts of competitions, finding problems, and also I look at the complexity in modern browsers, I'm I'm just not surprised that that they oh, can yeah. be owned. That just oh, yeah. that they've gotten incredibly complex. Postel's law is be liberal for, and this applies to browsers, be liberal in what you accept and stingy in what you uh, put out. And exactly. being liberal in what you accept for a browser means having to support, as you say, many, 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 many different protocols and ways of interaction. And, and styles. And yeah. styles. And it's hard to uh, prevent uh, attacks when you're that open. So here's something really interesting, and I don't yet know what it means, but BBC News has reported that as of May 25th, 2011, uh, that European laws dictate that explicit consent must be gathered from web users who are being tracked via cookies. Um, the, the beginning of their, art, the, of their report says, quote, the way websites track visitors and tailor ads to their behavior is about to undergo a big shakeup. Um, the story says that the changes are demanded 
by the European e-privacy directive, which comes into force in the UK in late May, on May 25th. Um, and it says, the section of the directive dealing with cookies was drawn up in an attempt to protect privacy and, in particular, limit how much use could be made of behavioral advertising. The directive demands that users be fully informed about the information being stored in cookies and told why they see particular adverts. And then, quoting again, it says, specifically excluded by the directive are cookies that log what people have put in online shopping baskets, meaning excluded are first-party cookies, which is what you, are, you typically need in order to maintain your local state with a remote server, but it's the third-party tracking mechanisms that we've talked about, which apparently become uh, not really outlawed, but again, it's not quite sure what this means. Now, in looking into this further, I determined that the UK isn't quite sure themselves yet what it means. They've said with some embarrassment that their formal written policy about what exactly this means won't be ready by May 25th. And then, of course, we have the other problem of jurisdiction. I mean, you know, they don't have any jurisdiction on me. I mean, I'm not using any tracking for anything, but, but you know, the net is global. And so I guess they could, within the, I don't know if this applies, it says European law. So is this maybe within the EU? I mean, there's a lot more we need to find out about what this means, but it means something. And presumably companies operating within whatever environment this pertains to will have an obligation to disclose their use of tracking. So, um, again, this is worth the beginning of what feels like a, some serious change. We've got the browsers adding do not track me headers. We've got, you know, the U.S. grumbling around trying to figure out what direction it wants to go in. And, and here we've got now the U.K. saying... Okay, there's a date. I know it doesn't quite mean anything yet, or we're not sure what it means, but there is one. So I just wanted to put that on our listeners' radar. That's going to be interesting to see what happens. Very, very interesting. <laughs> Meanwhile, Google has famously been having problems more um, with their Android Marketplace apps. Um, 50, or I should say about 50 apps were found recently to all be infected with the same piece of malware known as Droid Dream. Um, it uses a previously known vulnerability in earlier versions of Android, that is before 2.2.2, which is the version where this hole was closed. But it, um, Google became aware that a bunch of apps on the order of 50 uh, had made it onto the marketplace, had been downloaded, and were in use by, by, by Android users. So they pulled the apps immediately from the marketplace. They've suspended the accounts of the developers who were believed to be responsible for the infected applications, and 
they've said they've notified law enforcement. One, one thing I guess, and I haven't looked closely at the contracts with Android and Marketplace, but you don't put apps up there anonymously. You know, you, you have to sign an agreement about what your, contact, your conduct will be. And I did read some editorializing on the net that was saying, well, this is interesting because, you know, big companies like Google who have big bunches of attorneys can afford to pursue the people who, who do this, who are presumably known. So um, one of the things that Google did was then they took advantage of their so-called remote application removal feature to remotely go into the phones of people who had these applications installed and removed the app and then installed something called Android Market Security Tool March 2011, which proactively closed the hole on their versions of Android earlier than 2.2.2. So, so, you know, Google's doing, I, I would say, everything they can to respond to the fundamental problems that they have with being more open than, for example, Apple is with iTunes and, and the, you know, the iPhone and iPad app model. And that's the price you pay. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether if, if the marketplace developed a reputation of, you know, we're really going to know who you are in order for you to submit applications and we're going to stomp on you hard <laughs> if you do if you maliciously exploit your privilege of putting applications in yeah. the in the android marketplace well that might really cool things off there exactly from a malware standpoint i'm interested but, to see that they have a, and use the kill switch yes now they had before back last summer there were there were two instances i think where they did it but this was sweeping this was much bigger and it raised eyebrows you know there are people who don't like the idea that without user involvement or agreement, Google is able to go in and change people's phone configuration, go in and, you know, remove applications which are bad. I think it's entirely appropriate, frankly, given the level of user, um, the fact that in, in a, it's very much like Chrome, just sort of always fixing itself and not making a big deal about it. Google is saying, look, you know, there's problems. Stuff's going to happen. We're just going to fix it you know, as best we can when we know about it and and move on. So um, I, I would, you know, I, I think if polled, you're going to have some, you know, curmudgeon -y people who dislike it sort of on a conceptual basis. But I would imagine 99.99% of the people who have Android are saying, hey, fine. If there was something bad on my phone, I'm glad Google came and took it away. Yeah, oh. I think the kill switch is just. I mean, it, look, this is an internet. This is not a your personal computer. It's a computer, but it is a computer on a larger network, and there is a certain. I think a certain responsibility. I hate to see that on on PCs, but I think on phones, I think it's understandable, especially you're, you're, if they use it appropriately. Yes, you're in, you're inherently connected. Yeah. So here's a weird thing, okay. and I don't <laughs> quite I don't quite get this, but Microsoft is actively working to discourage the use of IE6. Now, yeah, that's good actually. Well, it's very good, but it's like, okay, 
uh, first of all, I'm not sure how they're doing going about that, but they've created a site called the IE6Countdown.com. And you should go there, Leo, while we're talking about this. Okay. So it's www.theie6countdown.com. Got to have scripting enabled. Otherwise, it won't count down for you. It shows it 100% in the upper right-hand corner. Oh, my. But, so that's what you're looking at. And what our listeners will look at when they go to the IE6Countdown.com is a map of the world showing the, in, the continuing use Against all odds. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have seven and we have eight and we almost have nine. But look at this. And China, it's like uh, yes, huge. What is that, 59% or 5.9%? Uh, I can't understand. 34.5% wow. of, of IE use in, in China, China is still IE6, wow. which does make you wonder, you know, why they're not getting their security updates. Right. Uh, <clears throat> of course, we know that this pirated software is what pirated it is. software doesn't yeah. get updated, yeah. right? Yeah. So, it's IE six. It's now ten years old. It's been a decade, and its use is enduring. And and it's interesting because in the text down there in the lower left, Leo, that you can see, it they're talking about if only people would stop using <laughs> IE six. You know, good for Microsoft. I think that's great. Except it's their fault. That it's not standards compliant. I mean, what they're saying is, if you'd stop, if if they, if only people. I mean, I I agree. I it's nice that they're doing it now that they have standards, a much more standards compliant browser. I've been reading because I've been studying JavaScript about you know the history of Microsoft IEs. For example, their event model still isn't the the W3C standard, they've just done it their own way and they're just thumbing their nose at everybody so that anyone who's, who's programming JavaScript has to special case just for IE because IE is still the dominant browser on, on, the, on wow. the planet. Wow. But so here's Microsoft saying down there in the lower left, please, if, if everyone would stop using IE, then web developers would have an easier time because, of course, IE6 was, is like much worse than 7, 8, or 9, which have been progressively getting better. Not just better in security, and that certainly is the case. I mean, you, you and it's, it's like in the middle there, it says, friends don't let friends use IE6. I mean, so Microsoft is really, go, I, I didn't even know this was their site initially. But, you know, I, I do take my hat off to them. So China, in China, 34.5% are still using IE6. In India... The number is 12.3. Saudi Arabia next lower at 10.7. And Japan next lower after that at 10.3%. So um, I looked at my own stats because I, I track uh, browser version sort of out of curiosity. Interestingly, IE5 still is not completely zero for us. In the last week, out of about 70,000 unique visitors... 0.07% of them are using, they came to GRC with IE5. 2.87% um, came with IE6. And the, I'm proud to say, Firefox users by, by far outnumber all other users. Uh, Firefox 3 is the most used browser. 
um, at GRC above even any version of IE. So, you know, people who come to GRC know what they're doing. Yeah. And I've seen that on my own pages too. I mean, yep. our audience, it's not our audience we have to worry about. Right. So <clears throat> Adobe released something odd. Uh, <laughs> it's Adobe Labs released something called Wallaby, which converts simple Flash games and animations into JavaScript and using HTML5 and scaled vector graphics so they, that they can run on, quote, devices that do not support the Flash runtimes. And, of course, we, we know what those are. There aren't many of them. And then on their, on their release notes page, they further said that complex animations crash the browser and zooming in and out can cause odd artifacts in the browser. They said, Wallaby is delivered as a 32-bit application for Windows and Macintosh. So what this thing is, is you, you give it your Flash project written in ActionScript, which is the Flash scripting language, and the various Flash resources, and this thing converts it into a, um, into a web kit compatible HTML5 and, and script. Uh, they said Wallaby is designed to emit HTML5 files compatible with WebKit and they made that in bold on their release notes based browsers. The only, again in their bold, supported WebKit browsers at this time are Chrome and Safari on OS X, Windows and iOS the iPad, iPhone, iPod, because Wallaby users, because Wallaby uses WebKit-specific animation primitives, animation will not work and has not been tested on other browsers. So it's WebKit-specific converter of Flash. And I, I've, known, I've seen a lot of criticism about it out on the net because it has lots of problems. It can't, you just can't give it your current Flash project and have it work because... And on their release notes page, if you scroll down, uh, it's um, labs.adobe.com slash wiki slash index.php slash wallaby and then pound release notes. But that'll just be release notes section of that wallaby page, um, which is where this can be found. So, so clearly what this is, is a response to Apple and Jobs saying, we don't want Flash running on our devices. In fact, we're going to prohibit it mm -hmm. from running on our devices. But what's odd is that Apple has also made it very clear that translators cannot be used. That you have to write things natively for their platform in order to use them. And so this is a translator on the other hand... But it runs in the browser, ultimately. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So you can do anything you want on a web page. Apple can't stop you from putting a web page up. Exactly. Yeah. So I guess this is just, you know, I just sort of, this crossed my radar. I thought our users, our listeners would find it interesting that... I'd like I guess, to see what kind of translation, you know, how good the translation is. Yeah. It uses yeah. SVG for, uh, for yep. graphics. Available vector graphics. Yeah. Does it have a video layer? I'm looking through here. Hmm. Doesn't seem to have a... Yeah, video is unsupported. So the thing that most people use Flash for <laughs> doesn't work. 
<laughs> yeah, and they said games and animations. So it's going to be, you know, I don't know, line drawing stuff. And, well, there's, you a know, lot of, there's a lot of games in Flash that are just, yeah. you know, animations, I guess. And so if they work, it, it, does, it does allow people a way to, to make that happen. I guess there's, there's no economic model for it because you can't sell something like this through the iTunes store. All you could do is say, oh, here, you know, click this link and run this game. And we'll hope there aren't any bad security <laughs> vulnerabilities with the, what Wallaby does. I don't know. Now, yeah, yeah, that's another issue. But that's up to the browser, right? I mean, if it's uh, HTML5. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, browser's right. up so, ultimately the security model here. Yep, exactly. So two conflicting reports have come out in the last week, which based on the number of people who, who sent me links and tweeted to me about it, generated a lot of interest. Um, a UCSD study came out which stated that erasing data on solid-state disks is difficult to do. They performed some experiments where they took a bunch of various manufacturers, SSDs, and USB drives and, and wrote patterned data on them so that they could sort of track the data by sector and then erased the data and I tried to do a secure erasure, like an overwrite erasure, and and then went in to the the flash ROM chips themselves and found, as I remember, on the order of ten percent of the data still survived. Now, at the same time, another report from Australia, from the Murdoch University in Perth, some researchers are complaining that. Solid-state drives are making forensics, traditional forensics, difficult because the logic in the drives, sort of the, the firmware in the drives, is altering the contents without any external intervention, causing these drives to lose data that forensics people would like to be able to recover. So um, I've decided since there was so much interest that has been expressed by our listeners that I ought to dig into this stuff and what these researchers have done and, uh, and cover it uh, in detail in a podcast. So I wanted to let our listeners know that I'm going to, the issue of this secure erasure from SSDs. And many people also tweeted in response to my comment last week, Leo, you'll remember about uh, one listener who was annoyed that the podcast was so long. Well, we got... <laughs> we got a, a response bag. <laughs> oh, not A. I mean, many people took the time to say, Steve, I love it the way it is. Love you and Leo bantering when you do. You know, listen for information and entertainment. Go for it. And please don't feel like, you know, the guillotine is going to drop if you, you know, talk a little longer. So I wanted to thank, I would acknowledge and thank everyone who thinks we're doing just the right thing here. Yeah, I mean, this is the show with the least fluff of any show on the network. You could <laughs> rightly complain that other shows are padded with BS, but not this show. This show is uh, is dense with Well, material. I have a little BS. Okay. Here's a, just <laughs> Once I, in a I'll, while, it's fun. I'll ask our listeners to indulge me because this was really neat. Uh, a, a listener of ours named Kent Nelson uh, referred us, meaning GRC, to a posting he found 
on mediasmartserver.net. This was posted February 24th, 2011 at 3.12 a.m. So somebody who is, you know, up in the wee hours of the night. And this is on, on under the, it was on a, on a board under Windows Home Server Troubleshooting and Support. And so this person whose name I don't know, but I thank him, said, I came to this board because I have a particular problem with my Windows Home Server. People were helpful. And I wanted to pay back by contributing a little. Surfing through the topics, I see the same themes recurring over and over again. Themes that I recognize from my day job. It would be a game of whack-a-mole to answer each of these individually. So here is a piece of advice to all. Firstly, what is my day job? I run an IT help desk company focused on the home market. Our workshop processes a vast number of PCs from every manufacturer and with every conceivable configuration. When you deal with thousands upon thousands of machines, patterns start to emerge. The pattern that I am recognizing from your posts is disks with health problems. Not the blindingly obvious disk has stopped working altogether type of health problems, the system itself will tell you about those. The much more subtle problems created when a drive starts to have low-level problems. Modern disks are miracles of engineering. It is a true wonder that they work at all. In fact, when you like, this guy sounds like me. In fact, but it's not me. Uh, <laughs> in fact, when you look under the covers, you can see just how close to the edge they're actually operating. These things are throwing millions of errors as they try to read data fail and have to go back and try again. None of this is surfaced to the operating system. You have to use special software that talks to the smart subsystem on the drive to get at such data. If a drive has a problem with just a tiny part of its surface, the performance of your computer can fall dramatically as the drive keeps trying to get the data. A good number of posts with folks seeking a good number of, po of those posts with so folks seeing machines behaving in flaky ways or working one time and not the next sound like disk problems to me. This should hardly be a surprise. With your home servers, you guys are dealing with many more drives that, than people with a single drive in a single PC. You are bound to run into more drive problems. The problem is the operating system gives you no visibility of such problems. It simply waits for the drive to do its thing. The only fault you're ever going to know about with the operating system is complete failure. All the subtleties up to that point, and you can be sure there were many, will be lost. There are tools for monitoring the smart subsystems on your drive, but we have found them to be of very limited use in the workshop. I only know of one tool that really goes to the depths of the drive and corrects these faults. It's called Spinrite. And he says, parens, www.grc.com. I should say this post is not an advertisement for the product. I have no connection with the vendor. If I knew of alternatives, I would list them here, but I do not. To the best of my knowledge, this is the only tool that does this, and it is extensively used by professional workshops throughout the world. Certainly, gets run on every spinning drive that comes through our workshop. 
He says paransit is not suitable for SSDs. Yes. He says, he says, I have personally seen it bring back to life non-booting PCs, recover data that was thought to be beyond recovery, and speed up systems to no end. And I have seen this numerous times. There are techies who say that such a thing is impossible and could never work. But they are also the people who have never tried it. Do not take my word for it. Ask around. The only downsize it, downside is it is not free, says Perens, $89. However, to folks like you, with terabytes of data to protect and manage, it is a reasonable investment. I own my own personal kit. Oh, it says, on my own personal kit, I run Spinrite on any new drive before deploying it. Then again, after each six months of use, I get longer life and much lower failure rates. I suggest you consider running this product on any PC or server that displays any odd behavior. You need to extract the drives from your home server and connect them directly to the motherboard of a spare PC because you need to boot from, this, uh, from a CD to run it, which is not an option on a headless server. It will work via a USB adapter, but, it's not the, but this is very much second best, so plug the drive into the motherboard. It takes an age to run on large drives, but there is no way around that when you, no way around that when you need when you read the documentation on what it is doing. Do not be put off by their website, which is very, <laughs> by, which is very amateurish. No, it is not. There's... Well, that's what he wrote. Oh, okay. This is a geeky product for geeky people that's been around for more than twenty years now. Yeah. I apologize that this post is unbalanced in that it is focused on a single product, which makes it feel commercial. If foreign members know of anything else which can perform these tasks and has a good reputation, then please comment and we can add some more balance. I suggest the moderators consider making this a sticky post, as with an audience like this, managing lots and lots of big drives, disk health will be a crucial topic. You will also save yourself a lot of time trying to whack each of those moles. Yeah. Boy, that's, uh, you must be thr thrilled about wow. that. <laughs> I mean, that is great. And by well, the way, I don't know what they responded in the forum, but I don't know of anything that's uh, anything like Spinrite. I mean, it's, no, it's, there, there was nothing. There were some yeah. people who said, yeah, we agree, you know, and yeah. there were some Security Now listeners, too. So it's that was the neat. one and only. I mean, uh, yep. and I suppose as SSDs become more prevalent, uh, it may be the last of its kind, right? I mean, yeah, I can't yeah. imagine at this point. You know, I mean, I don't know how much longer spinning drives will last. I guess we got another decade or so, but... Uh, oh, Western Digital just bought Hitachi. Did you see that Oh, no, I didn't see that. Interesting. Yeah. So we've Hitachi lost bought those IBM drives. Yep. Hitachi bought the technology from IBM. Now WD has acquired from Hitachi. So it's WD and Seagate. Wow. Pretty much. Yeah. Wow. That's too bad. I like those Hitachi drives. Oh, that was that was my absolutely my favorite when I could choose. That's what I yeah. I, I'm with you, Leo. Yeah. They were great drives. So let me mention real quickly, and then we'll get into our subject today. Stuxnet. Ooh, boy, can't wait to talk about that. But right now, let me just quickly, and I'm gonna do this very quickly because I know you've heard the story. I don't need to belabor it. Just remind those of you who are looking for a spam solution and run your own servers. You know, if you're using Gmail, you don't really need any spam anymore. Google does a very good job. But there are lots of people, lawyers, doctors, uh, businesses of all kinds, schools who don't use Gmail for a variety of reasons, who do need good anti-spam protection. And you could buy a 
there are boxes there that you could buy to do this. But really, the best service, it really is great, is MailRoute. My friend Tom Johnson created this uh, in 2000, what, what did I say, four, I think? That's when I started using it. Millions of messages a year stopped cold by mail route. Just very effective. A very low rate of false positives, one and a quarter million. I don't even bother checking for false positives anymore because it just does such a good job. I know I'm getting the mail I want and not so much of the spam I want. It's automatic, effective, and right now if you use this special URL, you'll save 10% for the life of your account. Mail route. Dot info. Typical mail route customers see a 95% reduction in their inbound email volume. 95%. I get actually, uh, I think, 97%. That's how much of my mail is spam. Mailroute.info. Find out more. Business accounts start at $2 per user per month for 10 users. And thanks to demand from the Twitter Army, there's now a service for individuals as well. Less than $30 per user per year. Mailroute.info. Find out more right now. Thank you for letting me interrupt with this important message. And now, let's talk about Stuxnet. So, what we have is, without argument, a true cyber weapon, which was, over the course of about nine months, from the time it was first seen to the, the last version that was seen, was... Under development, um, Symantec called it the most complex threat they had ever analyzed um, because of, of the number of different functions that it contained and, and also the fact that it was very cross-platform. It was a, or is, because it's still out there a little bit, but it, it is a Windows-based worm but it's designed to, to infect non-Windows-based systems. Many things are absolutely no longer in doubt. It, is, it cannot be doubted that this was directly targeted at the Iranian nuclear enrichment uh, project. Uh, uh, and I'll explain exactly why we know and how we know what we know. But it, um, it contained multiple zero-day exploits, uh, bundled in a Windows rootkit to hide itself from anyone. The first ever PLC, or Programmable Logic Controller rootkit, that had never been done before. Hmm. Um, it incorporated antivirus invasion techniques that I'll detail in a minute, where it literally looked to see what AV tools were in the system and knew how to get around them by version wow. number. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> talk about targeted. Oh, um, it had, well, and what that means is, think about it. It means the people who developed it ran it again in, in these different AV environments and watched the AV tools capture it. See, because one of the things it needed to do was it remained, it, it was trying to remain hidden. So, for example, after it replicates itself three times um, from a USB stick, it removes itself from the USB stick. Oh, oh wow. So, oh. To, 
to minimize the chance of discovery, it figures, okay, I spread onto three new systems, me, the USB stick, so I'm going to now, you know, Stuxnet sees that because it's logging and recording what it's doing, and then it deletes it from the USB stick so that someone later wouldn't see it and wonder, well, wait a minute, what's this? So, I mean, it's all of this stuff. It's got process injection and hooking code where that allows it to insert itself in other processes in the machine. Um, a, an array of network infection techniques, including a, um, a peer-to-peer technology that allows it to spread within local area networks and a command and control interface. It, it connects to a couple of domains that I'll describe in detail in a minute uh, in order to report on its existence and to give the those domains the opportunity to update the code so essentially a binary package comes back which is then just which is actually encrypted it's decrypted and then executed in order for Stuxnet to evolve over time so it's functionally it's able to self-replicate through removable drives, as I was saying, and that exploits a vulnerability which uh, Microsoft knew about, that, and we've talked about it. It was that, that .lnk vulnerability that where just, you didn't even have to open the link, a, a, a shortcut, just viewing the shortcut in Windows Explorer could cause that file to execute by, by malforming the way the link file was made. And the, the rootkit knows, how, which is hiding this, knows exactly how many bytes long the file is. And, and when Internet Explorer, I'm sorry, when Windows Explorer attempts to retrieve that from the directory, the rootkit says there's no file here. So it ju you just don't see it, even though it's sitting there on the drive. So... It's also able to spread through the land using a, a vulnerability that was also known for some time uh, in the Windows print spooler in order to, so, you know, everyone has the service running in Windows by default. The LAN is a trusted environment. So unless those Windows machines were patched current, they would have this problem. Oh, which is a perfect example for one of the questions we were asked last week. Remember the guy whose company had 15 machines behind a Windows server, unquote, and they were back on Service Pack 2 and no one was patching them. And he said, you know, is this a problem? Well, here's a perfect example of where machines on a LAN have visibility to each other and the Windows firewall protects you for, from WAN-based things, but because Microsoft wants to, make it, wants to make things easy, like file sharing does not protect you from land-based threats to, to the same degree. So if you're not patched, if you've got this Windows print spooler service listening, then Stuxnet would have been able to infect all the machines on that network. Um, and there's a, uh, an SMB exploit, an another well-known uh, problem in the, the server messages block, the so-called file and printer sharing service, which Stuxnet also knows. So, so machines that were kept really current would have been safe because these were known and patched vulnerabilities. Um, 
in several cases, but there were, there were, and still are, even today, Stuxnet is using some privilege escalation exploits, which have never been made public, which it uses in order to get around these AV devices. So um, it copies and executes itself on remote computers through network shares. And Siemens has a version of Windows called WinCC, which runs something called Step 7, which is their, it's, it's all Windows hosted. And this is the, the sort of the, um, the programming and code writing and debugging tool to which you connect Siemens-based programmable logic controller devices in order to sort of download the, the, the code that you write. Uh, PLCs are programmed in a in sort of a, they have like, like an assembly language and also sort of a, a simple step-based basic language in order to tell them what they want to do. They're pretty simple-minded, but so, so you do all your authoring of this stuff on a Windows-based machine, then hook up the device and download it into the, the PLC. Um, Stuxnet is able to update itself through this peer-to-peer -peer mechanism. So through uh, using uh, remote procedure calls, R R R RPC, Stuxnet sets up a server when it installs itself in a, when it infects a, a machine, and then sends out a broadcast for any other machines to see if they are of a later version, and if so, they share their updates with um, older versions of Stuxnet. So it's constantly keeping itself um, up to speed, um, and it exploits it exploits a total of four unpatched Microsoft vulnerabilities, two of which um, uh, had have never been disclosed publicly, as I mentioned before. Um, Okay, so what's significant about this, when you look at how comprehensive it is, is that it could never have been designed blind. That is, this is just, this is not something that, that script kiddies, no matter how much they want to, could create. This, in order to pull this off, you need, first of all, essentially schematics of the target. Somehow, someone got through information leakage, very detailed description of what it was that was going on in Iran's nuclear enrichment program. And of course, that's not information they were, they were letting go of. We know that because the, the, the targeting side of Stuxnet only fires when it sees a specific configuration of, of frequency converters tied onto this programmable logic controller, which, match, which matches the fingerprint of what was going on in Iran. The problem with Stuxnet is that it's a little bit blunt in that it, it is a propagating virus, uh, 100,000 copies of it are like infected mach windows machines all over the place so although it was it was dispersed in a targeted fashion that I'll talk about in a second because of these these abilities it has to propagate it got loose from the the 
targeted companies, the five companies with connections to Iran that, that were infected with this, and it, it got out into the wild. Well, we wouldn't want this thing infecting, you know, our own nuclear power plants or opening the floodgates on the Hoover Dam or, you know, anything else. I mean, programmable logic controllers are used for all of these things. This is like the way process control systems are run. And so you don't want to let something loose that is, I mean, that is this powerful that is going to misfire. It's like weaponized so, anthrax. You've got to have some, some sort of protocol. Yes. And, and so what that meant was that the designers of this thing had to know exactly what it was going to find if it could get in to the enrichment plant. They had to know exactly what was there. So when it's when, because I mean, there were versions of it all over. I mean, it was found in, um, in thousands of sea, other Siemens systems. So this thing, I mean, th this was this upset a lot of people who. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, you know, because I mean, this got into many of these of these Siemens PLC systems, but because the the equipment that it found connected to the programmable logic controller didn't exactly match what it what it it was designed to find, they didn't do anything malicious in those cases. Thank goodness. But so so you have to have you have to know exactly what your target is. And then, as I had mentioned in a prior podcast, as, as, as information began to come out, I remember saying uh, to, to you, Leo, a few months ago, somebody had to actually have yeah. this equipment. You I mean, called you, had, it, you called it totally. You had to set it up. You had to, I mean, you don't just write code and say, well, hope this works. I mean, all of this had to be prototyped. So you had to have frequency converters and, and basically mock up mock up what is in Iran in a lab somewhere in order to write the code to make this go. So basically, as, as Symantec put it, a mirrored environment had to be created in the lab. Also remember that this thing, in order to, in order to work, it needed to get into the kernel in order to set up a rootkit to protect itself. It needed to have digitally signed drivers and wow. we know where they came from remember wow. they came from real tech and j micron mm -hmm. two companies in the same industrial park the same physical location so it is believed that some agent broke in to and physically compromised those facilities to steal their private keys for their credentials. Wow. There's a order. novel here. <laughs> or, or, oh, I know. I mean, what, a, it, what a book. It really is. I mean, yeah. this is, this is, you know, this is real. You couldn't, I mean, this is, <laughs> it's incredible. So some, some agent, you know, covert undercover, you know, in the, in the middle of the night. Wow. Went into real tech's a semiconductor and J micron and did whatever had to do to get their private digital signing keys and made off with them so that the drivers could be signed for for this to all work. So I mean that was so there are so many facets to this. Now, um, 
The problem with these PLC-based machines, these, these programmable logic controller authoring machines, is it is understood that security is a concern. So they are never directly connected to the internet. So the designers, under, the designers of Stuxnet understood that they were not going to infect the machine. But think about it. As a consequence of not being connected to the internet, you have to get data in and out of them. So it's thumb drives, which is right. the in, in, it's the infection vector. Right. If, if you're going to have a standalone machine because you're worried about security, well, you're going to use thumb drives. And so, so a lot of attention in Stuxnet is paid to infecting removable drives, protecting their cont contents, keeping the contents invisible, and it is it is believed that that essentially that's that 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 strategy is what worked. That that machines that were connected to the internet got infected with Stuxnet, and then in the normal course of 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 you know transferring data, updating files. You know, here you've got this machine running the your nuclear enrichment facility, and you're all proud of yourself that it's not on the internet, so nothing can get to it. Yet, you you know, there's a new version of the PLC software. So you download it over on oh this boy. machine. Oh boy! <laughs> load it onto your thumb drive, and then bring it over to the not on the internet PLC. You know, Iranian enrichment controlling plant mm -hmm. controlling computer. And bang, that gets it infected. Wow. So, so, um, the, when, um, when Stuxnet arrives in a new machine, it, and I have written down here somewhere, the domains that it queried. Uh, I should to, look, I have your notes. Uh, here it is. It's my, my premier Football, F -U -T -B -O -L com. So www.mypremierfootball, spelled F-U-T-B-O-L.com, and www.todaysfootball, F-U-T-B-O-L.com, are two servers which originally pointed into Malaysia and Denmark. When the, when, when the worm was able to um, get itself in, installed. It would uh, it would look up the DN the IPs of those DN those DNS domains and send a package of sort of status, including its its log of the of its entire history of infection. Um, it had a timestamp, uh, information about the OS version. And um, an additional information, um, and that log. So over the time that Stuxnet was known about, Symantec was able to collect over 3,280 unique samples, individual instances of Stuxnet, each with a different log, because each log tracked that you know basically the lineage the all the ancestral versions as it had infected one machine after another it kept appending to this log um, what they know 
as a consequence of being able to mine these logs of this 3,280 different instances of Stuxnet is that there were um, three events targeting exactly five organizations, each having a presence within Iran. Um, from those three events targeting five organizations, 12,000 infections can be traced back to exactly those five organizations. So basically, and we don't know how Stuxnet was planted in those organizations. Could have been a, a, a conspirator, could have been, you know, emailed in, you know, somehow they got within those organizations. Um, the first organization, and the, they've remained anonymous in this report, was targeted twice in June 2009 and then again in April 2010. The second organization was targeted three times in that June 09 attack, the, the second one in, um, in March of 2010, and then in May of 2010. The third one was targeted once, the third organization targeted once in July of 2009, as was the fourth organization. And the fifth one was targeted once in May of 2009. Um, and then, um, uh, and I said, but, but had three additional or three initial infections because the same initially infected USB drive was inserted into three different PCs. Oh yeah, so there were like, it was targeted once, but it was like salted in three different locations within that organization. And so Symantec was able to track back all the way back to those, you know, very original three instances within that, that fifth organization. Um, the shortest span of time between the, the compilation of Stuxnet, where it was, you know, literally its source code was compiled, which inherently binds some date information into the code, to the, an initial infection was 12 hours. So this thing was built, and in at least one case, within 12 hours, an infection was planted. The longest span between comp comp compilation time and, in and infection was 28 days, and the average was 19. So this, this whole thing took, took place in, in the latter half of 2009 and the beginning of 2010. And, and so they know from, again, looking at these logs, that there were three attack waves. The, essentially, uh, June 22nd, in 2009, March 1st in 2010, and April 14th in 2010. And Stuxnet was getting better. The March 1st attack had, was a much more capable worm than the June one. So if, if you could sort of put yourself in the mindset of the people who were doing this, who designed this, um, they had a goal and they had a system which was providing them feedback. And so, so that was a mixed blessing because obviously Symantec is able to determine everything they have because of the feedback which the, which the worm provided to its command and control servers every time it propagated. 
But you could see also that while it was unknown, before it became known, this was vital information for the designers because it allowed them to profile the performance of this weapon they had written in the wild. And they, they were, you know, these were spear attacks. I mean, they were, they were somehow sending agents into, into Iran or into affiliated companies to, and planting Stuxnet there. We know that because of the, of the dispersion of the virus. Um, of all infections of Stuxnet globally, 58.31 were in Iran. 58.31%. Sorry, 58.31%. That's, that's pretty effective. So, yeah. Did like a good job. Nearly 60% were in Iran. So, but, but that's just machines infected. So that means, you know, it wasn't released in Santa Clara. And, you know, all went there because all the machines between here and Santa Clara would be infected. I mean, so the, so the point is that uh, it, it started there somehow. Somehow it was planted in that location, like, like you know, near to its goal, and then, and then spread locally. And, of course, due to the fact that it was a worm it, and used unpatched but known vulnerabilities of Windows, it did get loose. Yet, as I said, the... the the weaponized end, thank goodness, was so tightly targeted that it didn't do damage to all the other Siemens systems that it sought out and did infect. 18% um, uh, in Indonesia and 10% in India. And then it, um, it, it fell off. And um, also, the Siemens Step 7 system that I mentioned, of the infections, 67.6% of the Iranian infections had Step 7 software installed. So it was, again, it was seeking out and, and looking for these process control-based systems. 8.1% um, uh, in South Korea of the infections had step seven installed, 5% in the USA and 2.18 in the UK. So, you know, it did, in, for example, in the US, 5% of the infections of Stuxnet were Siemens-based systems. So it was infecting US-based process control systems. And the good news is, you know, the floodgates of Hoover Dam didn't get opened as a consequence. So, well, I think it's really uh, clear that, well, we know, in fact, I think we know who did this now because there have been some revelations, but I think it's pretty clear that they were tar heavily targeting. Yeah, well, and this evidence... And effectively. I mean, and see, and what, I guess what, 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 is, what I find so interesting is that if you really take advantage of the information coming back to you, you can, you know, as you said, Leo, this is a plot. I mean, we can work, we can work out what had to happen in order for this result. I mean, you know, in order for the drivers to be signed with good driver certificates from two innocent companies, somebody had to go and break into them and get their private keys in order to, in order to sign the drivers. Um, 
Stuxnet, the virus, is aware of Kaspersky KAV version 6 through 9, um, the current McAfee products, Antivir, Bitdefender, E-Trust, F-Secure, uh, Symantec and Symantec Common Client, ESETS, Nod32, and Trends PC Cillin. It has code in it to specifically see that those products are in the system. And remember, one of its priorities is stealth. It, it, was, it very much wanted to get its work done before it was being found. So what, what it did was it would look in the system to see if these things were present. And if so, it would look at, their, it would look at the exes to determine the versions and had version-specific behavior so that it, it was designed to go underneath the, 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 the detection. And in several cases, it did that by using either one of two because it, it ran on window, all versions of Windows XP through Win 7, um, not earlier than, than XP. It, would, um, it used vulnerabilities that had never been published for, for getting admin privileges if it was not running with admin privilege in, and, and use those in order to play some, some, some kernel-level hook games in order to install itself into processes in a way that would specifically would not be detected by these intrusion detection systems that were you know, designed to detect exactly this behavior. The, um, the rootkit that it installed, even, in the, even with these tools, with these AV uh, systems in place, it was able to install a rootkit robustly and reliably um, and, and filter the, the API calls that Windows was making to the kernel such that if a file with a .lnk extension was going to be enumerated in a directory search and the file was 4,171 bytes long, the rootkit would just remove that from the listing because the, the malicious link files that Stuxnet used were obviously 4,171 bytes long. And if a file was named tilde WTR, then four digits dot TMP, whose file was between 4K and 8, uh, between 4K and 8 meg, but the sum of those four digits modulo 10 was zero, <laughs> Then it, that file would also not appear. Well, so and why? I have, why would that? I don't understand what that's the point of that uh, is. And so, so the, well, so so this was Stuxnet needed some flexibility in having in in in, in its payload, so the link files uh. wouldn't be seen, but it needed it needed other files from time to time that it might need to hide, and so what it would do is it would design it designed the rootkit filter such that such sort of with, with a with a pattern match so that if the pattern was tilde wtr then four digits dot tmp and if the sum of those digits 
added up to zero modulus 10, then, you know, that is added up to 10, 20, 30, 40, for example, and that, or zero, I guess, then that triggered the rootkit not to show that file. So they could hide in plain sight. Yes. It so wouldn't be other, an obvious rootkit file. Precisely. So other, and it had to coexist. So, right. you know, the, it's go, so this was on the thumb drive or on the system where Stuxnet was installed. It had to coexist with other things. And it would, it would look, when it was going to jump onto the thumb drive, it would verify that the drive had not just been infected by comparing the, the, um, the files with the current time. It would verify that the infection source was less than 21 days old, meaning that oh, after wow. three weeks... It expires. Yes. Wow. It would stop wow. trying. It so would just, cool. It was, it was just brilliantly designed. So the point is, it, again, it was trying to not get discovered. So it, it gave itself three weeks on, on a given system. It gave itself three weeks to infect all the drives it could, and after that point, it would go silent you know, and just not do it anymore because, uh, it get, again, it, it figured, hey, if I haven't done it within three weeks, then... And, and who knows what the developers knew about the protocol being used in Iran's nuclear enrichment facility. They might have known, for example, that something happened every two weeks or every, every week or something. So if they were able to get onto the machine that was one step away from the machine doing um, the, the, the development and, and controlling the programmable logic con controller process control stuff, if they could get to that machine, then they, they knew that like there would be some, some thumb drive-based communication between those two within three weeks. And if not, then they're just not on a machine where that's going to happen. Sounds like and, they really knew what they, not only what they were doing, but what they were, where they were going to be. I mean, they was, was so yeah. clearly targeted. Yes, and the drive, the thumb drive, had to have at least three files and five meg of free space because you wouldn't want to, you know, <laughs> run into, I'm sorry, you don't have enough room on your drive to, to, to hold our rootkit and our Stuxnet virus. So one of the files, WTR4141.tmp, and if you think about it, 4141, that adds up to 10, which is zero modulus 10. That would, that um, would... So it was sort of like the advanced guard that was a small bit of code that hid its companion file tilde WTR4132. And again, 4132, that sums to, uh, to 10, so that's zero modulus 10. And that contained the entire Stuxnet payload that jumped over onto the thumb drive. When they finally got there, a one file which was a DLL on this Step 7 PLC programming computer. The DLL was S70TBXDX.DLL. That got renamed to, instead of the, the last characters being XDX.DLL, it got renamed to XSX.DLL. And a replacement s7otbxdx.dll which was this the the plc rootkit it was installed so so essentially this dll that had was 
it's very comprehensive. It has like 140 different what Microsoft calls exports. Those are like functions that the DLL can offer. The replacement file didn't duplicate all of those. For almost all of them, it simply forwarded those calls to the fake DLL to the real one because it knew what it had renamed the real one. So when, when you know, 135 of those different functions were called, it handed them off to the original DLL to work correctly. But the few that it needed to alter allowed it to intercept those functions on their way to the Siemens programmable logic controller and essentially, essentially add its own code to the code that was being downloaded and arrange for that code never to be visible, never to be seen. And so everything we talked about was for the, just the sake of getting a bit of code, custom written code appended to the front of the code controlling the PLC and that it also had to be that, that code that looked around at what it was connected to and knew whether to do anything or to stay inert. Wow. And so that's the history of the world's first, I mean, truly weaponized internet worm. Mm. Do you think the people who wrote this were security researchers, virus authors? Do you think they took existing code and modified it? I mean, it sounds fairly sophisticated. Um, anyone who... Um, Maybe it, like they contracted out. I mean, look, Israel did this, right? We know that. Yes. We've heard that, in fact, they had exactly the same setup intentionally. It was pretty clear. Yes. And they had, of course, they had means. They had the motive because they didn't yes. want Iran to have a nuclear bomb. Yeah, I would say they probably did it with help. Um, I mean, I, know, I believe that uh, there are resources in the U.S. And, I mean, we certainly would not be hostile to the intention of of keeping Iran from getting a nuclear bomb and and the argument was that that's what they were using this nuclear enrichment for um, you know that the, despite their their denial saying that they just, they just want it for electric power generation so um, uh, you have to think that within the NSA within I mean within our own government and and you know, uh, you know, sort of shady organizations. I mean, you know, uh, we were talking about uh, uh, what is it? Uh, HS Gary is the company, or HSB Gary? I can't remember the name of the company, but it's it's a major sort of hacking contractor, right? Um, that <laughs> is what they do. Organizations in Washington use um, to you know for their own purposes, and it was those guys who who created a device, a firewire device, that allowed the guts to be sucked out of, a, uh, uh, out of a computer, just plugging it into the firewire port. It did DMA and copied the contents out, and wow. that came from that company. So there are, there are even commercial organizations, uh, it's where our tax dollars are going, that, that have this kind of competence and are able to participate in projects like this. And, you know, Leo, how many times in the early days of this podcast, you know, like episode two and three and four, <laughs> yeah. when, when we were looking at sort of in, interesting 
windows, viruses, and worms and things, and commenting, isn't it nice? I mean, and aren't we really lucky that they're not malicious? Right. right. So many of these things, and I, I scratched my head. I was like, why? Okay, I'm glad that they're not doing bad things, but why not? Who's who's going to all the trouble of <laughs> right. creating them right. and just to sort of have them float right. around out there? They're practicing. But, but that's what they did. They just floated around out there. I think. Well, yeah. remember the very first virus was uh, written by uh, that guy Morris. Uh, uh, the Morris worm. The Morris worm. Uh, just to see what would happen. Yeah. He wasn't malicious. No. It, it escaped. And it really hurt his <laughs> reputation a lot. Yeah, his father was a very famous security guy. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, and so I think that some some of this in the early days was just people. You know, hackers uh, are curious, and I could see how tempting it would be to say. You know, I could create something that would spread itself. Wonder what would happen. <laughs> and just do it. I can well, understand and, that. And within within the white hat within the white hat community, we we still hear echoes of, well, boy, you know, why can't we write a disinfector worm? Yeah. It's like Yeah, remember that? I know yeah. you want Yeah, I know you want to, but sorry, you're that even if you're, you know, altering someone's machine and you think that's a good thing. You're doing it without their permission. Well, and I think ultimately, uh, while it sounds like Stuxnet was pretty carefully crafted not to do oh. harm and was very specifically targeted, oh, it's still dangerous. a bad, 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 bad idea. Yeah, and Leo, imagine if it had misfired. Right. Imagine if there had been colla literally collateral damage from the, the thousands of Siemens computer systems. Right. I mean, it, it went in and it replaced a DLL. I mean, we depend upon these process right. control systems to run big plants. And it was in there replacing a DLL yeah. in order to get access to the programmable logic controller to then go add code to it and hope that it didn't do the wrong thing. I mean, it was gutsy. Um, if, <laughs> look, we know there is no such thing as perfect code. And the pro we also know that programmers have a little bit of hubris <laughs> and and there's probably not a programmer alive who thinks he can't write perfect code yeah if challenged and, and not to. not one alive that ever has yeah <laughs> if it was that easy everybody anybody would do it what a great subject um show notes uh, as always are on steve's site grc.com and i put the show notes in our twit wiki every uh, every week it's the one show i actually do that uh, because you you have such good notes i always make sure they're in the wiki at wiki.twit.tv uh, you can get 16 kilobit versions of the show at grc.com. Steve has transcripts, too, which is really great. And this is the kind of show uh, that I could imagine a college class or a, somebody's teaching security might very well want to get people to listen to or read because it's so interesting. John is asking, was there an Easter eggs in, in Stuxnet? <laughs> you know, actually, I skipped over that. but There, there was? Were, yeah, well, there were some odd things. Like, there were some... There were some codes which, if you took it to represent a date, was the birthday of somebody famous in Iran. Mm. I mean, it was those sorts of things, really subtle. Mm. And in Symantec's report, they made a point of saying, look, you know, this is what Wikipedia says about this. I mean, about this particular collection of characters. But remember, the people doing this would have strong reasons to be be pointing fingers to someone else. So we you absolutely couldn't wow. take that as ego out of control, but rather just additional 
subterfuge. Red herring? It could be a red herring. Precisely. Wow. Oh, I want somebody to do the research. Some <laughs> intrepid uh, journalist to do the research on this and write a book. What a fascinating story that must have been. I don't wow, think we'll, wow. ever, we'll ever know. Cause, no, because, I mean, it really, oh, thank goodness it didn't misfire, yeah, Leo. Yeah. I, when I, as I really came to understand what this thing was, I was thinking, oh, goodness. <laughs> I mean, this was really, this was potent. Well, I can guarantee you in future Security Nows we'll be talking about worse. Uh, Absolutely. Well, Sad to say. We'll, we'll be here. Yeah. Tony 91 episodes in, and no sign of stopping Steve Gibson. He's a machine. Visit grc.com for your copy of Spinrite. You've got to have it. If you've got a hard drive, you've got to have Spinrite. Uh, and, of course, if you've got questions, we do a feedback episode every other episode. And uh, now is the time to go to grc.com slash feedback. Ask those questions. Maybe you'll get included in the uh, next week's episode. And um, tune in every Wednesday at uh, 11 a.m. Pacific. Uh, Apple permitting. <laughs> Thank you for moving <laughs> last week. 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time at live.twit.tv to watch. Steve, thanks so much. Thanks, Leo. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.